from Nord and Nothing Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology. And with me today is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. I've repeated a mantra of mine several times on the show. Everything in life is education and philosophy, because each moment we learn, and the next moment we make meaning of it. While philosophy forms the essence of our show, Norm and I are also passionate about education. This week, instead of educating about philosophy, we'll philosophize about education. <laughs> nice. nice. So, um, yeah, we've done an episode on education before, um, but this week we're going to look at educational philosophy, um, mm-hmm. which is its own um, its own uh, category. Um, and I took a whole class on this um, for my master's degree. And it was interesting. Um, as you learn about the different schools, it's it's kind of funny you you read about each one and you're like oh okay yeah i'm behind this um and then you go down to the next one oh yeah i'm behind this oh yeah i'm behind this you know like so I, I think that each one has um has some of its merits so it'll be interesting to dig into them but um kind of like last week i think we'll we'll start formative first okay. um and i think the first question would be what what makes an educational philosophy Oh, you asked a lovely question right at the start. All right, so, and 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 are you implying and how is that different from an education theory? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what what um yeah how would we define it? I guess. It, it, yeah, I think it's a combination. Well, it's it's as with any philosophical process, you're asking questions. You're trying to pursue those questions and in the, in the pursuit of the uh, Socratic methods, you are, you end up with a set of suppositions or principles that you're basically testing. And out of that may arise an actual structure or a way of, of overall reconceiving or understanding something about the amorphous process you're looking at in the first place. So what makes, how do you philosophize about education is how you philosophize about anything else, as you suggested in your be- at the beginning. Really, education and philosophy are very hard to untangle. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, I think that that is something that's interesting thinking about it, because I think that a lot of people would um, sort of conflate educational philosophies with educational theories. Um, but I think it is important to, to say that they're not the same. No, I I think they're not because uh, I I think on the surface, at least certainly not because to me as one practitioner, somebody who spent his life in education, um, but it's not like you, even to say something like that, that's just so uh, mundane. It, oh, I, I I choose the pool of education. I splash around that pool for forty years. Okay, well, well wait a minute. <laughs> You're doing more than splashing around sometimes, but to me, what really differentiates differentiates it in an active way is the asking of questions, not moving immediately out of uh, certainties. Hmm. Not, not even every single day in your practice. No, every single day in your practice, if you're at your best on top of your game, so to speak, you should be emerging with what should I do today based on what happened in the class, the previous meeting. You've, you've more, you haven't waited to the last minute to think about that, but you're still going to think about that. What was going on when this student said this? What was going, uh, potentially what might have been going on when this conversation went from point A to point G? <laughs> and how do we get back to BC, uh, to construct it a, a little bit more, uh, not linearly necessarily, but uh, logically? And, and so you're starting with basically well, what happened? What do I do next? What might I do next? Is there even a, what should I do next? Possibly depending on the day. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think that that, that is an important <clears throat> distinction to make. And I think that a lot of, um, you know, from, from the schooling that I had, that's something that you, um, you see is that, man, I think that a lot of people want to get caught up in the idea of, having prescribed methods right and i i don't think that that 
is necessarily coming from teachers or from the educational training. I think it, it a lot of it comes from outside pressures. Well, as we were talking about before, and I and I and I, I can't help but say these things because this is the this is the zone in which to, to talk about them. How many electricians do you know? Or you encountered, or people who work at a certain kind of press or molding device, who uh, want somebody like me coming from the outside saying, "Oh, well, you're not doing what I want you to do with that molding press, so I want you to adjust adjust the settings because I'm uncomfortable with the smell of that device at the heat that you have it at. I think that it needs to be something else." And probably that person's going to say, perhaps kindly, perhaps not, "Step away. I am the professional here." And we, and we are in a current situation in which people who are not educators in any of trained and perhaps intellectually formative sense want to empower and encourage a chaotic divisiveness among people by saying, oh, uh, parents should uh, have the, the school should have the transparency so that uh, Parents should know all of the lesson plans for an entire year. And as I said to you off before we were on the mics, uh, go ahead and ask a local plumber, electrician, or anybody else, people for whom I have the utmost respect, because I grew up with a mechanic and somebody who worked in the factories. You go up to somebody and say, I want to know every job you're going to do in the next, uh, in the next 30, 365 days. I want to know what your process is going to be for each job. I want you to know. I want to know what your 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 primary approach to those jobs are going to be, or else I'm not going to let you do them. Yeah, it's funny. I'm actually dealing with that at work right now. We have a, a customer who um they put out orders for the entire year, um and then they asked after that. So what's the shipping plan? We want to for every week. We want to know how many skids you're going to ship. So, well, <laughs> that question doesn't really make any sense because with your particular part, we we take a larger part and we cut it down. So depending on what size you have determines how much the main piece can produce. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it'll be a different number of skids. I'm like, but on top of that, um, you know, I can't predict when people are going to take vacation time or when we're going to press maintenance or breakdowns or you know, like this, yep. there's a number of variables that are going to pop up between now and week 52 <laughs> that are going to uh, delay or, you know, accelerate it at, at a different rate. Of course. So education is similar, you know, but it, instead of machines or um, workers, it's it's more um, children's, how children learn and where the classroom kind of takes them. Yeah. And so this is why having an educational philosophy is important. It's not enough to just have a theory or have a prescribed um, set of methods. You have to have some sort of um, foundational thought in going into how you're approaching things. And the foundational thought is, and people sometimes don't like to go here because this too is very complicated. The foundational thought is based on the foundational objectives, objective itself. Uh, there is a philosophical writing currently in education which suggests that we have to try to come to terms with what is the objective that we're after. Now, I resist the single objective notion as fundamentally overly simplistic. But there are at least three discernible objectives that are involved with education now that really can trail back to when the first formal public school was, was created in around 1837, something like this. And, and in fact, back right back to the 1600s when people were hitting these shores with slaves too, uh, uh, deciding that the primary Goal was to be educated to, uh, you know, in Latin, but only if even then you were elite communities of uh, this over 200 years of, of, of uh, up into the 1800s, 
at one point there was a a, a rule, <laughs> a mandate that said that uh, if your community is roughly about fifty people, you're going to have uh, a schoolmaster who's essentially a generalist. That's not the terms they used then, but that's what it is. However, if you have over 50 uh, in your community, then you must have a schoolmaster who is trained in Latin and will take people into the re religious and uh, Latin root disciplines. So you learn the language. So you can go to Harvard, which was the only, the only college that existed uh, on these shores. <laughs> yeah, I just, I can't help it. I, I know I sound punchy, Joel, but I just, if people would bother to study our history, and many people do who don't get read, <laughs> who aren't in the common parlance and certainly aren't in the political vocabulary because it's too complicated. Elitism is part of who we have been from the start. Christian elitism was what was determining a whole lot of stuff back at the beginning. Yeah, I was about to say the the Moral Land Act and the um, the Homesteading Act, and then you know Harvard, Yale, um, these big colleges. Um, the purpose of them was to train preachers. Yes, <laughs> that's why they were invented. And then the purpose of them became to train lawyers. And the and the people now who claim that an elite education, we got to keep the elitists away. We got to uh, the people who are denouncing these things and all you got to do is do one click go to their vita go to their resumes and they are trained at harvard and yale as lawyers who have gone up through the very uh airy ranks uh to achieve the positions that they have but they have the hypocrisy to denounce the idea that an elite education, which means an education which is thorough at some of the top institutions in the country, you can have an, a very thorough education in any college you go to if you bother to want to learn. It's true of 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 a, it's true of education. It yeah. has to come from within. You also have to have the conditions that allow it from without. I know I'm going all over the map here, but but really formatively, uh, we have been at loggerheads about education right from the get-go this is not a new thing yeah. and 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 so and but the objectives uh, one of the objectives of our, our school system from k onward is social mobility hmm. uh, the schools preparing students to to be able to what compete for social positions Competition is everything in schools, isn't it? Grades. My students got to have a name. I I've got the best on the team. Whatever it happens to be. Why? So I can, they can have the best life possible. What do you mean by that? What do you really mean by that? You mean so they can get a position somebody else doesn't, so they can rise above others. It's a vertical caste system. Social mobility. All right. Then we have social efficiency. Meaning, and, and you'll be, you've probably talked about this endlessly in your classes. Schools focusing mostly on training workers. Yeah. Okay. We got to train workers. It's all about working. Is it? Or is that just our capitalist system? All right. So if it's all about working, what in the, the, the 15, 16, 17 plus years of public school is ostensibly primarily about working well there's a whole lot of philosophy about working if you get into am i arriving at a rehearsal on time for a drama club or am i having my parents say to me oh you can't go out for that long for a rehearsal because but you can go out that long for a sports meeting so even in the simplest things the idea of of efficiency meaning get my person trained my 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 kid trained so they will be a, a good worker why well a good worker is then going to help contribute to the tax base so when i get old we need to have all these good workers that are supporting my retirement and 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 and, and we have to have lots of taxpayers so that we can uh, achieve the things that we say that we want in society uh, and then we have the, the, the democratic education, making somebody a good citizen. And that really is back at the basis of it. But arguably that one could be seen as being the driver of the others. Right. But there's so many forces that are going back and forth and hither and yon, rust and bash about, no, this isn't school goal of education. This is. 
Yeah, and so it raises a lot of questions because, um, again, educational philosophy doesn't exist in a vacuum, um, not only on the education side, but also on the philosophy side. So yeah. if we look at democratic education, we say, well, it's, it's about being a good citizen. Well, that leads you to the question, the philosophical question of, well, what makes a good citizen? And precisely. Right? There's and, the Socratic thing. <laughs> it's probably going to be determined policy-wise by the party in charge at that moment. So there's a lot of complicating factors. Um, but we'll, we'll try to draw it back in. Um, and so thinking about this, right, and these these interactions and how um, philosophy is always a multidisciplinary thing that draws on other, on other things, right? So. Mm-hmm. If we ask the question, um, obviously they're inextricably interlinked, but what separates an education or a philosophy of education as opposed to a philosophy of, of learning, right? Where, where's the distinction? I, that's an excellent question. Uh, I think we need to probe it uh, because it depends on how one looks at the word education. Uh, the common, oftenly often spoke spoken phrase, uh, "I'm getting an education," or "I got past tense," which is really interesting. I got my education, and where did it get me? <laughs> so, get, got, past, present. You know, yeah. All right. So, education seems to sometimes be considered a package that you go into a store and you purchase. <clears throat> Uh, well, which sort of undermines the idea that it is a lifelong process. It, it seems to be presented more as a product. Right. Okay. Whereas the, the, the second word you used, getting, uh, oh, learning, learning, we, we have this wrestling match with learning. So learning is something you do in order to Choose your bullet points to better yourself, to get a good job, whatever. Uh, but we know that if there's an end point to that, which isn't one's own terminal termination of one's life, we know that you just stop and say, I'm done learning. <laughs> or as my father-in-law, bless him, but would, would often say, uh, uh, ironically, I will learn when I go to shul. He, he'd, he'd say that to his mother when he was resisting going to, <laughs> she said, she talking to him about learning some things at home. Mother, I will learn when I go to shul. And that's <laughs> on purpose, right? But I think a lot of people have this. Learning is for schooling and schooling doesn't have to happen all the time. Well, there's lots of learning, as we know, that doesn't happen in school. There's experiential learning that we all encounter or could if we bothered to think about it. But then we have the people who say, ah, uh, learning is not from books. Learning is just from life experience. So we've got the, the people who like to do the either or, which is always a limitation and often artificial. But I think ultimately education is more of a package. Learning is more of a process in the yeah. common parlance. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. I think that if you're talking about a philosophy of learning, you're probably talking a lot more about um, the processes of acquiring new um, information. Whereas education, um, I think you're referring to more external um, structures or external interaction, right? It, it's possible for you to learn things on your own. Um, and, you know, really, you're learning things every moment, right? Your senses are perceiving things and then your brain is is reacting to them. In education... Um, probably goes beyond that. Like an education has some elements of it that are um, uh, outside of that. You think? I think it. It. Yes, I think so, and I think it's entirely on how it's presented. Like, there's a Sunni institution that I won't name, but as I was driving to our one of our local, uh, you know, cities, Rochester, uh, a couple of nights ago to hear a wonderful jazz concert, and there was a billboard by the road, and uh, this uh, State University of New York uh, College, uh, big letters right on the front. I can't tell you exactly word for word because I didn't take my camera out. I was driving. But it essentially says, start to earn here. Well, Purposely, the L was gone. Right? Start to earn here. Well, we know which objective thereafter. Yeah. Colleges for getting a job. 
Why? Because parents say so. Okay. No. College is about developing oneself to find your skills, to hone and to and to discover about yourself, to find things you didn't even know about yourself, to be surprised, to be made uncomfortable, to, <laughs> which is what all of school is. Uh, the, the, all the people who you can't make me feel uncomfortable, then you're not going to get an education. Yeah. So yeah, we've started out um, with a good overview. I think that that segues in pretty well to. Um, discussing some of some of the main educational philosophies that have been developed over time. What are what do we have that that's already out there that people have have thought about? I think at base, many of the the, the big name philosophers we we often go to have some commonalities. Uh, let's start with Aristotle. Aristotle said it's the mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain an idea without necessarily accepting it, hmm. which is essentially means to consider, to probe, to learn what it means before you decide whether you reject it outright or debate with it, which is more of what Aristotle was suggesting, whether you say, okay, where are you with this idea? But that means interacting with it. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that that's an important thing that we see not happening these days. And um, you and I have talked about it off the air a little bit. I've I've had some su- su- success talking um, with with people who don't have similar beliefs to me, and actually changing some people's minds um, just by not dismissing their beliefs out of hand, mm-hmm. right? And sometimes you'll hear some crazy or even offensive things, right? But to just clear your mind and say, okay. Just to ask the simple question, wherever the starting point is, all right, well, why do you, why do you believe that? You know, what, why do you think that is? People love that question. Why, why do you think that is? Yes. And they'll provide you an explanation. And what you'll find is lots of times after that initial, um, very blunt, very forceful assertion of a belief, if you ask them, why do you think that is, they'll give you, um, the rationale. And it's much easier um, to, like you said, debate with, wrestle with, um, civilly discuss a rationale than it is to merely hit a blunt force assertion with another blunt force assertion, yes. right? Yes. And that's what Aristotle is saying is, right, you know, okay, well, it's better to understand an idea and then to wrestle with it than to just hear something and accept it, you know? Oh, this came across my my Facebook newsfeed, so it must be real. Or somebody said something I don't like, so it's automatically false. Right? Yeah. yeah. The no- the notion of truth, and 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 I know that people are all over the scale with that word, but at base, that's been an education from the start. And many mission statements or implied statements, of, and not just in higher education. Well, to find the truth, you have to question, you have to probe, you need to debate, you need to discuss, you need to entertain, as you just said, civilly. Nietzsche, the people, you know, whatever responses they have, said, wrote that there is nothing more necessary than truth. And in comparison with everything with it, with truth, everything else has only secondary value. This absolute will to truth, what is it? Is it the will to not allow ourselves to be deceived? It is the will, is it the will not to deceive? One does not want to be deceived under the supposition that it is injurious, dangerous, or fatal to be deceived. Hmm. And I think both sides in the education argument would say, yeah. But then the hard work has to happen. Well, so if, if you, if it's injurious or dangerous to be deceived, to be deceived about one's own history, and even still, both sides will be on it. Yep. You have to see where you're going. But ultimately, there are records. We have them. We know not everything that was done. In 400 years, but we know much. We know things that are done now. 
And, and the hard work of facing that and then saying, okay, but am, am I then supposed to just fold and say I'm not a, a, a potentially good person? No. Do I bear the weight of all of that myself? No. Can the culture and the society be better for facing the truth? Yeah. And so, and this harkens back to what we were saying before, right? So if you ask what it means to be a good citizen, it's going to be dictated by the people in charge. Very much the same way when you're talking about truth, right? If you ask what is truth, even though there is an objective answer out there, um, different uh, paradigms are going to have different responses. And so it's the purpose and point of education to try to cut through those and get to the heart of truth. So and that's and that's what Aristotelian essentialism, which is what we're talking about. We do, we don't usually go into formal, but it is what we're talking. Essentialism about. is is the philosophical paradigm we're talking about um, there. Aristotelian, um, that's what it's about. It's about wrestling with ideas, right? Exactly. So. Um, so what are what are some of the other educational philosophies that we should touch on? What are oh, other people? Um, well, let's we see. don't have to hit everything no. formally, but just no. what would in- no? Uh, Plato said that the best way to learn is to play, and that's that's interesting. <laughs> you know that, that essentially the, you you shouldn't that uh, <laughs> don't use compulsion. A free man ought not to learn anything under duress. Yeah, and this is a good one because um, I'll I'll put I'll put a link to this um, probably in a separate show. I'll do like a little announcement with some links in the show notes. But I've I've had a couple different podcasts recently that I've been a part of that we've talked about different things. Then we can and, put links up. Yeah, yeah. Cool. But I was a guest on another podcast um, last week um, uh, where they were asking me about my educational background and things, and. Um, that my educational that's what my educational background is and in this case we're talking about perennialism is this school of the philosophical school um and a lot you know a lot of what that's saying is that there are things that transcend time that are important educationally right so as a result um you know if we were to say okay well there's nothing that was taught in the 1600s that's important now right because now we have iphones or the internet or whatever um there are some educational schools that would agree with that okay yeah there's there's nothing worth going back to there perennialism essentially says no actually the most important things to teach are the things that transcend time the things that what what was important back in the 1600s that's important now and um you know some of those things are reading writing debate logic um those sorts of things that there's no expiration date on them, right? These they're important now. Isn't That's exactly it? it. Yes. So I, you know, and there's obviously opponents to perennialism who would say, okay, well, yeah, but learning how to read, write, and debate doesn't teach you how to program a computer, right? right. And then right. that's that's a valid, um, that's a valid yeah, argument. If that's one of your, well, because it's all okay. So we have to. I'm with perennialism on that. That you need context, but the context you need. Because life keeps going. It's impossible to learn everything. The whole idea that, uh, and people get caught up in this. I've had, I had students so many times in, uh, in college who would apologize or berate themselves or, or be angry. Well, I didn't, I, I didn't learn that in, in high school. I don't remember we ever talked about that. No, you probably didn't because why in the world would you ever think? That it's so compressible and finite that everything you need to know you learn in kindergarten. No, <laughs> you know, and and you can't learn everything in an entire lifetime. And we know this. It's like the expansion of galaxies. This is not difficult. It requires a, a humility that says, "Nope, I'm never going to know everything, but I'm going to try." <laughs> I think that's what education. That's what learning is about, but I think for me, my education uh, taught me, and my education continues to teach me to approach it that way. Yeah, yeah. So those are kind of the two big ones: is parentalism and essentialism. There are like twenty others. I mean, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a bunch of. Them. Uh, do you think there's any other ones that are worth touching on? I do. Uh, 
I, 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 I behaviorism, I throw out in the wastebasket a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I had really, even in grad school, I had really such issues. I, I, I forced myself as, uh, as Aristotle and others would have said, you better understand it before you throw it away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but we were made to put it into practice when I was first teaching junior high and high school. Everything was ex- external. Everything that was valuable in learning could be measured. Well, then it came back decades later when I was teaching in college. It suddenly became the thing again. So only that which you can visually see or hear or touch and so on, the, the phenomenological approach, the sense approach, only those things are able to be called education because you can't measure what's going on inside. Well, that, that certainly doesn't work for me, but the, the, the one that does, I know people are going to cringe. Some people perhaps constructivism, the two and humanism because both, uh, in, in slightly different ways, it, work about on the interior and the exterior and putting them together and suggest that, uh, and, and, and there's a branch of one of them that's, that's, that's it, it claims to be a separate theory entirely, but I don't think so. I think it branches from them, from myself. But it's it's uh, called uh, transformative theory, where you are taking what's in the past, your past experience, your past learning, but you're encountering new stuff, and that causes a sea change in how you see things and how you how you uh, you come to an epiphany of a kind. Yeah. Uh, that's what really works for me. I said, yeah, absolutely. Bring your experience to the table. Bring all of it, the mud and the good. <laughs> and, and basically as an educator, I'm saying, I dare you to look it straight in the face and tell me there's not more than that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that one's important too. Um, I'm a, I'm a tinkerer, right? So my latest thing is 3D printing and, I can sort of see that developing as I, as I work with it, right? When I first got it, um, you know, you, you sort of learn it in chunks, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Um, so the most important thing is, is getting the bed level. And I adjust that with screws. Well, then you start to, oh, okay, well, that helped me out, but it's still not working just right. And then you think, oh, okay, well, no, there's actually an X axis. So if I make sure all the wheels have the proper tension, that'll increase. All right, it's better now, but... No, there's still something not right. Oh, okay. Well, the bed is not the best surface, so I'm going to switch from a glass to a mirror. So my conception of what a 3D printer is and what it does and how it works is constantly evolving as I'm becoming more familiar with more minute details of it. I'm constructing, my brain is sort of constructing the concept of a 3D printer as I'm learning about it, right? So it's, it's kind of um, similar, and that's a very simplistic example no, of example. constructive yeah. thinking. Obviously, humans are much more complex, and, and the backgrounds that they bring and the concepts that you're learning are much more complex than, than 3D printing. But that's sort of the, the, the philosophy behind it. Well, and, 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 I, and that's, I think that's why it speaks to me, because you and I, well, as you said in the other podcast too, but it's been clear to me about you since I knew you that, that we we have interests that that go tangentially. Once a week, I have a discussion with an old friend in the who who is a master teacher in theater. He's in Florida now. He's he's in his mid eighties. He's an incredible writer. He's an incredible thinker. We talk about plays. We talk about lots of other stuff. We talk about theories of. Of dramaturgy and 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 uh, going into how a play actually works, and gee, you know that plays out into my art when I when I am working on my sketches and what am I noticing? I have to be noticing lots of things. I have to be attentive. I have to be aware. Where's the nose in relation to the cheek? Where's the? What am I trying to do with this? What? Why am I choosing these colors? Uh, am I, if I'm moving away from uh, the realism or naturalism and into an abstracted or impressionistic mode? Why am I doing that? I'm, I'm making choices. Well, making choices is about being an adult. It's also an existentialist viewpoint. So now I'm going into <laughs> philosophy, right? It's all interwebbed. It, it is con- the constructivist, the transformative uh, theory, the humanistic theory says, yes, that's and how that, we learn. That's the important part of doing philosophy and of, of 
doing education, right, is this ability to think critically and to draw on different aspects. And the one that immediately pops to my mind, I hadn't thought about it until just now, but it makes perfect sense, right, <laughs> is we've done a lot of talk about um, AI recently, right? Yeah. And it's it's everybody knows, you know, you don't have to be some expert. Everybody knows that AI is the next wave of computer um, usage, right? So the way that it used to work is programmers had to program every single little thing into a computer. Now we've gotten to the point where you program seed parameters. You know, you basically tell the computer a, a couple little instructions and then you let it learn how to operate and it performs much better, right? Apply that to education, right? And think about that's sort of a, a perennialist viewpoint, right? You're saying, okay, well, if I teach this thing the very basics of how to think, how to learn, and how to engage with ideas, it's going to do that very thing, engage and learn, and it's going to you know, acquire knowledge in a much better way. Well, what's, what's the opposite of that? It's being controlling over the minutia of how education is administered, and it's essentially programming it with a curriculum. Yes. So formal education is sort of going backwards to computing, computer engineering. That's <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. So that's you know, just sort of a, a weird off the that's cuff. That's a really interesting observation. I mean, there is a, there's always a foundational necessity. You know, how many students ask all the time, why do I have to learn this? That shouldn't be the first question, but of course it's a question, and it's a reasonable question to ask in the, in the scope of things. Well, you don't know yet, <laughs> is the answer, to expand you into places where you haven't gotten to yet, to, to anticipate how you might deal with things that you haven't dealt with yet. <laughs> and that's, I think that's, I'm not an educator, but to me that would be the difficulty of being an educator is because I feel like if you've gotten to that point, there's already been a lot of damage done, right? I talked in the podcast I was on recently. Um, I'm I'm kind of the the case study of of that thing that I just said, right? Mm -hmm. If you just if you just get a couple of the foundational things right, it's sort of like winding it up and then you just let it go and it runs on its own. That's kind of been my my trajectory throughout my life is, um, you know, at a very young age, my mom basically said, hey, learning isn't just something you do in school, like your your father-in-law said, right? Learning isn't just something you do at school. You know, we're going to go out on the weekends and, you know, anywhere we go, she, you know, she's going to have a historical fact or she's going she's gonna to play with something and say, hey, look what this thing can do or how it works. And just developing that attitude and then... Um, really bolstering it with some things that aren't taught in formal education. You know, she gave me um, a, a book that wasn't a school book. It, I was a, it was like a curriculum, but I didn't do it for school. She just said, hey, take a look at this. And then I did it in my spare time um, was a logic text. So I read each lesson plan and I did all the exercises because it was fun. Yeah. Because I didn't know any better. <laughs> I didn't know it was school because my mom had sort of made it into a game. And so I thought, oh, okay, well, this is just a fun thing to do. Well, once that took hold, that just played out through the rest of my life, right? So that yeah. not only do I enjoy the formal education, obviously, if I'm getting a doctorate, but also just outside in everyday life, you know, I, I like to teach myself musical instruments or I like to learn how a 3D printer works, you know, everything works that way. And so, you know, if you look at it from a perennialist viewpoint, right? Well, you know, teaching somebody logic doesn't teach you how to program a computer. Well, in a way, it kind way of it does. Kind of does it? If, you, if you teach somebody how to think critically right. about something, um, there's a good chance that they can pick up a text and approach it in such a way that they can come to an understanding of it. Obviously, with advanced topics, that's much more difficult. Mm -hmm. um, but even with things, you know, I, I you know, I, I, I did fall into the trap that of thinking that I wasn't good at math, right? Now I'm taking advanced statistics with, you know, factorial and <laughs> analysis of variance designs, and you know, one problem takes two hours to do and stuff. 
I'm still getting an A in these classes, right? Because as soon as I was able to reflect and say, okay, well, this is just a stupid ingrained mindset. Like if I approach this the same way that I approach everything else, you know, with an open mind, I I can get this. I can understand it, right? Um, I think that a lot of damage has already been done to kids um, with some of this pre-programmed mindsets um, in school. Freud, Freud would agree with you, and so would Bertrand Russell. So we're now we're at the beginning of the night of the twentieth century. It's Freud, and nobody likes to hear about Freud anymore, too. I know, but, uh, but it's more complicated than one thing. So one of the things he he mentioned he would write about is the the disaster and the sadness of taking the remarkable, the what he called the radiant intelligence of a child radiating right the radiant intelligence of the child and ending up with the feeble mentality of the adult hmm. essentially saying what's going on here yeah and 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 russell it's not like it was an aunt bertrand russell who was a, a polymath from from britain an amazing fellow but he he wasn't exactly answering it but he was offering something nonetheless it wasn't a one it wasn't conversing that way but uh to live, to teach how to live without certainty, hmm. without certainty, and yet without being paralyzed by hesitation, is perhaps the chief thing that philosophy in our age can do for those who study it. Well, this for me is right where it comes. When I first read that, I, you know, it's marvelous. It's, it's its own mantra, really, to 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 teach. How to live without certainty? That that sort of Star Trekian <laughs> to boldly go. Can you ima- imagine right now the responses of, of of if we were on a megaphone and there were five hundred people listening, and probably the grand majority of those people are saying, "No, we need certainty. Everything is supposed to be the way it always was. Everything is supposed to. We know exactly what happens now and exactly what happens next." And guess what, folks? No, we don't. And you bloody well know it in your own lives. And, yeah. and do we all know this? And, and we and we go along pretending like the emperor has clothes. Right. Hum, human life is totally about uncertainty from moment to moment to moment. We cloak it. We entertain ourselves away from it. We, we don't dwell on it constantly because it would drive us mad. But ultimately, to face uncertainty and still be productive to face uncertainty and still have creative thoughts and to take actions sometimes to take actions rapidly even though they might not entirely be the right actions but then to dwell on them afterward uh, to not be paralyzed but to still realize hey it's not always going to be the way it always was and the way it always was wasn't always the way it was and even then and it wasn't all that good anyway (laughs) yeah that's the beautiful unintuitive irony of it right is if you want your child to be able to know truth you can't program truth into an educational theory because you don't know truth the best way to teach your child how to find truth is to not dictate it right you, you they, it has to be something that is found right and that's why the scientific method exists right you don't start with a conclusion and then find things that support the conclusion you know, you you start with a hypothesis and then you find evidence that either supports or refutes it, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's interesting like that. <laughs> do, do you think strict adherence to an educational philosophy is even possible, much less desirable? Oh, I think it's possible. I don't think it's desirable. I, I think there are people who become ideologues. Yeah. It, 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 which, which itself shines another light on the hypocrisy that that we live with every day. We we have politicians saying we don't want students to be indoctrinated into uh, thinking. Bloody hell, of course you want students to be indoctrinated. Why do you have them chant a thing that they don't even understand at all every single day? Yes, I'm talking about the Pledge of Allegiance, but that that is one little example of an underlying notion of ideology and indoctrination to make students say the same thing every day is bloody obvious 
indoctrination rather than to say, think about what this says. Do you have questions about what this says? I have questions about what this says. Do you know that that thing went through three different stages of development? Do you know this was the original form? And I might have been able to say that, but the form that developed in the 1950s because we were afraid of communists and had to prove that we were Christian and therefore added under God, that didn't exist. It has it didn't exist until within my own lifetime, one generation. And suddenly, it's ideology. It has to be done, or else our children are falling apart, and everything we believe in is shot. Nonsense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It definitely has this air of of being um, sacred or ancient. You know, as if it's it's built into the bedrock, and of- it's not. <laughs> and it was formulated by a huckster who used to be a, a, a minister who was trying to sell magazines that he edited. <laughs> and to sell American flags to go with it. <laughs> now, that doesn't mean there wasn't something to it, but to understand the history of it is to not take it quite as in, as an indoctrinating Aryan thing, as an ideological, uh, you know. What about saying, here are some of the things that we've said about ourselves over the ages, over a few hundred years, which of those seem to have problems? But of course, you don't want to talk about problems because if you talk about problems, you're not indoctrinating people into being good employees, so-called, which is ultimately a paramilitary kind of experience, which you say, do this, do this, no. answer to bells, there's the behaviorism, answer to sign, any, uh, you know, go through the day this way, this way, now you're here, now you're here, now you're here. Oh, by the way, I want you to think really creatively out of the box. Right. <laughs> so here's a question then. Um, is the purpose of educational philosophies for individuals or for institutions? You always ask intriguing questions. Okay. Is it for individuals or for institutions? That's what you asked, right? Yeah. So if you're, if you're thinking about a philosophy of education, you know, or you're thinking about, and, and, you know how it, maybe it varies, right? So if you're Plato or Aristotle or John Dewey or whoever, yeah, yeah. why are you developing a philosophy of education? Who's it for? Well, okay, let's. Th- th- that's a really fine question. So I think you start with the individual, and if enough people find it worthy to keep asking those those kinds of questions along those kinds of paths, then it becomes institutional. I don't, I don't think institutions ask those questions nearly enough because it's easy for institutions to, to be self-protective entities and therefore don't poke, don't, that, there's, that's so much of what's going around here now. Don't, don't, don't poke, don't ask, don't tell, don't say any, just, just march. <laughs> you so know? Do, you th- <laughs> do you think educational, um, paradigms and curriculums really match up with much educational philosophy nowadays? I think on an individual basis, they do. I think with with teachers at all levels who, who think about it, and some do. I know some, many do, but institutions often get in the way of that in order to, to say that they're doing their due diligence on the people that they're managing and so on. I mean, okay, so here's, here's an example. You, you have, uh, workshops that go for, uh, an endless chronological amount of time. It might be two years, it might be five years. Uh, it's called PD, professional development. And you put, you put, uh, an entire school full of teachers into that professional development where you bring in outside contractors consultants who are going to work with those teachers to tell them how they could teach better. And you spend an entire year uh, saying, well, let's show you how to do a proper lesson plan. Now, some of the teachers are still working on their master's degrees. Some of them are far past their master's degrees. Most of them know what a bloody (laughs) lesson plan is. And to constantly dwell on that without even Socratically interrogating it means that you are being, your time is not being used to be a better creative teacher and to do your work because somebody 
wants to prove that you've heard this 15 times. Not that you learned it because you already learned it before, but you've, it's been said. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a really good, insightful answer that a lot of people who aren't in the field of education um, probably didn't know, but there's, there's a big tension, right? So there's educational philosophers who um, have developed how education should work, thinking um, with the student in mind. Um, and then these things are taught to teachers, and then teachers are attempting to implement them. Um, but then in a lot of ways, the institutions, the schools are sort of fighting them um, by programming things in a way that that goes against what the philosophy of education is telling you about how people learn. And thus you end up with, as a, as a, a, a colloquial example, you end up with people who say, oh, well, superintendent's days, that's just a vacation day for, for teachers. Ah, is it? So you want to go spend a day listening to people all day long, tell you things that you already know instead of letting you do your job? And you think that's a vacation? Hmm. Well, let's see. What if you had the electrician again and he had to go through or she or they had to go through a, a, a year of workshops saying, now this is a circuit. <laughs> and I think we know what the response would be. And it would be a righteous response. Yeah. So are dictated educational methods necessary for a curriculum? Because there are educational philosophies that say that they're not. Yeah. There, are, there are some out there that say you don't you don't need a curriculum. You actually don't need <laughs> these things in order to educate students. Where where do you fall on that on that sort of Oh, well, I was always a rebel about curriculums, <laughs> as you well know. Uh, how many times did I say we're not using textbooks, we're using real books? And we're kind of, okay. And I'm not heroifying about that. I, I, I No, I, I, I was starting to get good at what I did, but then it ended. I, I think that a curriculum that is never in constant process is uh, which and by constant process I mean uh, being a self-examined well examined closely by the, those who have to put it in place and by those who are putting it in place to, to the teachers who then have to implement it which would be politicians and, and systems uh, if it's not constantly being rethought, revised, on the ground. And if it's not designed for that to happen, then it is a diseased curriculum. If, if it is a... Uh, if, uh, now, there are a lot of people who complained about the, the standards that the state, New York State set, as an example, uh, uh, a number of years back now, uh, that it was a ridiculous curriculum. Well, if you really read it, all the way through, and I did, it allows for an incredible amount of choices of materials and approaches. But teachers were not given the time to study that, curric that, that curriculum before it was put in place. And then parents got upset about it because they didn't understand it, and the teachers were coming to terms about it, and it put people, it's what, <laughs> it is what systems often do. They put people at odds with each other, and then the system can grind on. Mm. So do I, is it possible to have a curriculum that is healthy, uh, flexible, and growing just as much as, as a human being? Absolutely. Does it happen a lot? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, no, your classes are a great example because I, I mean, I've obviously have a lot of formal education under my belt at this point. And there's a lot of textbooks that are sitting on my shelf that I haven't cracked open since I took the class. Um, I can't really say that about your class. There's a lot of books, Rollo May and um, oh, The Courage to Create. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, Simon Blackburn. There's a lot of books that I read in your class that I still read and engage with today, or I bought other works from those authors. <laughs> and I've learned a lot of things from them that, you know, even though those are real books and not textbooks, that's still kind of a, a curriculum. Right? <laughs> like it, it, still it, it's, it is because your education is ongoing. And I think that's really where the philosophy is. Uh, question. Uh, are you still learning? Yeah. Uh, yes. You say you're still learning. How do you know? 
Well, I think it's a lot like the 3D printer, right? So in your class, I I was presented with these ideas, well, like Rollo May, right? Oh, wow, metaphor. Like, I always just thought metaphor was just, you know, I never gave a second thought to it, right? <laughs> then you read about this and, and you think, oh, wow, he's, he's pretty much asserting like metaphor is almost all there is, right? Yeah. Language is everything that we do is metaphor. Yeah. And then and Lakoff and Johnson, they were doing that. Yeah, and we're yeah. all made talking about metaphor and art and how our art, our lives as artists is really metaphorically about the difficulty and the pain of coming to new learning. Yeah. So and what happens is, you know, you start with that, that block. Oh, metaphor. Oh, a 3D printer. Then you start picking apart the pieces of it. Right. And as you start to understand the pieces of it and how it works and how everything goes together, <laughs> you come up to a greater understanding of the thing as a whole. Um, and there might be par parts of it you don't like, mm -hmm. you know, much like the machine. Oh, wow. I, I wish they had designed this differently, you know, or, you know, well, this theory, you know, I, I, I kind of feel that maybe it, it goes another way, mm -hmm. but you have the expertise to have that sort of opinion by examining it further. Right? That's, and that's what I would say, stepping aside as a woman saying as a teacher, ah, yes. You're learning. And then you might ask, how do you know I'm learning? And I would say to you, because you've assessed, you've gone into new places, you've taken what you've learned, you've questioned it, you've you've said, this makes some sense, this not so much, but here's why for me what, what I'm doing here. That's a, that's a, it's a system. <laughs> it is an organic process. And yeah. I think fine, I think a there's so, so many fine teachers who want to do that with their students and who don't, for whatever reasons and understandable reasons, sometimes understandable, sometimes not, don't find their way to saying, no, I don't have to do this. You know, in, in, in Florida, with all the... the not, <laughs> Not just Florida, there are other states that are doing this kind of squashing, trying to suggest that education is simply about the exterior learning of skills that will make you a better employee. Oh, you're going to be a better employee without being at all concerned or interested in the people around you and accepting them as equally human with you? I don't think so, Mr. DeSantis. But there you are. And and so I... I, I <laughs> You, you, you take those things on and you say, well, they're, they're, um, they're implying, but they don't have the courage or the language or the competence to say that they're implying an educational theory. They're certainly not putting out an educational theory. They're just saying, this is what we want because it's control. Mm. And, and, and education, authentic liberal arts education is about relinquishing control, which is not to say you have a classroom full of people bopping each other with spit wads. It is, <laughs> or worse now, but it is to say, I can't be in control of what you ultimately come to value. That's not my job. I can be in control about what I put in front of you. And that's nobody else's concern except you as a thinking human being. Yeah. Again, I come back to the computer analogy there. You know, like if, if you program a computer, sure, it can, it can be really good at doing that thing that you programmed it to do. In this case, working, right? Mm -hmm. That's just training, right? Just training people to be workers. But if that's all your education is about, if you're just programming the thing to work, what happens when it's not at work? And you see this so much. You see these people that have unfulfilling personal lives or they conflate their careers with their value as as human beings and mm -hmm. things you know and it's and are taught by the system to do that right whereas again being an ai you know having these these seeds right not not dictating the truth um not trying to be in control um but starting the thing on the right track and presenting it with examples that are accurate and, and, and noteworthy and then letting it letting it learn how do we how should educational philosophies balance structure with exploration and creativity in play in as many ways as 
the complex human beings we're teaching people have to offer. <laughs> that wasn't intentionally vague, but there, there isn't a finite number of ways of teaching. As you just you, you said about the examples of, of, of your mom handing you a book. You know, and I've told you about it sometimes. You know, I would, John, it's not Johnny Appleseed, it's Johnny Bookseed, I called myself. Was, Here, want some? Have some. <laughs> and, and, and sometimes that would put people in at risk with their, with their, with their parents in the sense of their, their parents would say that uh, they would find a book that I'd let students read and, and their, their kids, their kids, their adults in this case, <laughs> in college. And, and 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 tell them, okay, this person is a is demonic, and he's trying to undo your soul by reading uh, A.C. Grayling's <laughs> book on philosophy, one of his books, okay, or reading The Courage to Create, or reading Metaphors We Live By, whatever it is, and and, and so you know, take that back. And a, a few times, uh, students' parents tell them, you either don't read the the books in this class, you don't take this this particular teacher anymore, or you don't get to go to college. Now, thankfully, that didn't happen often, but it happened enough that I, that, and I would have to counsel the student, then don't ever sign up for one of my classes again. Go find somebody else because you need to continue on with your education. But I strongly urge you not to put all of your books in your book bag so that you as an 18, 19, 20-year-old have your parents rifling through your book bag to see what you're reading, which is talk about control and the effort at and and this is where we go to the idea of this 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 uh, also capitalistic metaphor of 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 calling parents the primary stakeholders in education. That's utter nonsense. The primary stakeholder in education is the soul, the being, the lively intellect, or one hopes will become so. Sitting in, walking around, playing among others in a classroom. That student is the primary stakeholder, not the parent, not the politician, not the teacher. It's the student. Hmm. Yeah. I know I'm getting strident. But <laughs> <laughs> the whole the whole episode has been this. this and I mean, we've flown through, I mean, in an hour and two minutes, we've, we've really gone through it. So I, I apologize to the listeners. Some of it has been um, to two people who have, have been intimately um, involved with the educational um, uh, machine for for so long that we there's there ha, there's been a lot of venting this episode, but I think that we've we've um talked about a lot of really good things. We did talk about um educational theories, and we did explore uh what makes an educational philosophy and what the important aspects of of an educational philosophy are. And I think that's something that gets lost even at a graduate level. Talking about so. what yeah. what the purpose of an educational that radiant is. intelligence that that Freud talked about, and I see it firsthand with again now with the granddaughter. Says, "Why? How come? How does this work? What's this?" And you have to be able to say, "You know, this one. Yeah, I can I can help you with this, but it's not the complete answer. You'll want to look it up. You'll want to read more about it." I'm trying to. I don't think it's even a. a it's it's not a curriculum in the formal sense. It's how I approach. I want her to be able to go through her whole school life, even if it means being ostracized by systems or individuals or politicians, <laughs> that we always must ask questions. And we always must understand that the answer is not complete, and we can, and nor is everything certain. I really think, for me, that that's what underlies the whole philosophical enterprise of 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 philosophy. We didn't go to definition. Yeah. The Latin root of education. Did you did you look it up? I did not. It's no, it's marvelous. I, I remember had a teacher long ago who made us do this. <laughs> it means to lead out, hmm. or to depending on the the tense to be led out. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. What does it imply? What questions does that bring up? Yeah, I think I think what. What's interesting about it, and we haven't talked about it a lot in in this show, is is the role of the teacher, right? I think you've been touching on that a little bit right there, which is that the teacher's job is to lead the students and to educate them. Um, 
But like you just said with your granddaughter, right? Probably the educator that I would trust the least is the one who has all the answers, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's an important part of of being an educator is um, being able to to admit when you don't have the answers and being able to learn things from your students and being able to know how to find answers rather than having them all at your fingertips, right? If you have a teacher who can answer any question that you have off the cuff, I I would be pretty distrusting of that. I right? call him Mr. Peabody. <laughs> <laughs> Old cartoon. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's funny. That's what came up in, in the podcast that I, that I did last week is, um, you know, I, they were asking me questions about, about different things. And uh, one of the guys said at one point, you know, you sound like a philosopher because yes, anytime I ask you a question, you, it's always, well, that depends. Well, there's multiple lines of thinking. Well, this, and it's, well, yeah, that's, that's the way real life works, right? Is, you know, lots of times, you know, you're, you know, we've talked in this episode about truth, right? And how um, some institutions like to dictate it or how, you know, you find it by not dictating it by, by teaching people how to think. But, really um it it's something that is is in motion right which isn't to say that it's not out there but it's something that is continually being discovered and made in in within the context of our reality right one hopes that's why in our show right we ask one question and there's just six other questions that (laughs) pop up and we answer those and then more pop up that's just that's how life works and education has to be tailored to that reality you know yeah Yeah. all right well this has been a good one until next time keep pondering